Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. So throughout covenant history, God has done a specific thing over and over and over again in calling individual men and women, but mostly men at first, to come and follow him. He calls a man, tells him to follow him to where he does not know he will go, and then puts blessings and promises on that man in the journey. This is the meta story of the Old Testament. It is the narrative that is in each of the narratives. When God calls Abraham, for example, he tells Abraham to leave his father's country, to leave his father's land and go to a place, and he names that place, but he names it in this way, to the land that I will show you. Interestingly, he doesn't describe where he's going. Abraham hears the promise of God that he'll become a great nation, that he'll be blessed. He hears that promise and he obeys even in the light of not knowing where you're going. Isn't that an interesting idea that the Lord says, follow me, and then Abraham follows him, but he doesn't know where. He doesn't know exactly how God is showing Abraham in the moment how to follow him, and where to follow him. Likewise, Abraham trusted God's promises and obeyed. He trusted in the promise of God, and that was the fuel for his obedience. He hears God's word, he responds to God's word in faith, and that faith-filled response catapults him, launches him into obedience. Obedience is only possible in Abraham's account because of the external word of God coming as promise, hearing that external word and responding in faith and obeying. Likewise, Isaac journeys among the Philistines in the land of Canaan, the land that will become to be called Canaan, and he does this in response to the reiterated and repeated promises of God. If you look in Genesis 26, God promises to Isaac the exact same things that he had promised to his father Abraham. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac receives those same promises through a reiteration of God's word. He likewise, like his father Abraham, takes up his father's faith and it becomes his own faith in response to God's promises and therefore obeys again. He recapitulates or redoes, reiterates the obedience of Abraham. To flee from Esau, Jacob was sent by Isaac back to the land that Abraham came from. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the story, Jacob cheats Esau, uh, excuse me, Isaac 
excuse me, Jacob cheats Esau from his birthright. Esau despises his birthright, throws it on the ground, so to speak. He treats it as garbage. He, he is so famished that he decides to sell the promises and inheritance of God in exchange for a bowl of soup, which if you know, I, I hate soup normally. The, it's not even, this isn't even prime rib. This is a bowl of lentils. This is, this is cheap food, and he takes all the covenant promises of God and says, I'm really hungry. And so he despises his birthright, and uh, Jacob steals it, and he takes it and upholds God's promises in it. Nevertheless, Isaac sends Jacob away, and, and uh, excuse me, Isaac sends Jacob away, and Jacob flees and journeys again. So this idea of journey is coming back to, to repetition in the life of Israel. Over and over again, these patriarchs have a calling, which is in order to follow God, they have to leave what they know and they have to go to a place that they do not know. And they have to do that in response to God's promises, not out of their own desire for a promised land or their own desire to be ambitious, but rather they go to where they are sent. Before departing, Isaac blesses Jacob and he asks God to give him the blessing of Abraham so that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings. But what's very interesting is that doesn't actually come to pass, right? We, we know that from history. What happens is that Jacob's sons grow up, they sell their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. God sends a great famine upon the land and in this famine, the sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel, those who would become the heads of the tribes, those brothers go down to Egypt to buy grain. And interestingly in the story, just as there's already been three great journeys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now they reiterate or redo another three great journeys. They go down to Egypt once. They come back with food. After a little while, they go down again. And this time they have to take Benjamin because Joseph made them promise to take Benjamin. And then after sending them back with grain, then Joseph goes and calls his brothers, bring your father with, with you this last time. There's three great journeys down into Egypt. They're on the move. These are people who have not inherited the Canaanite land, the land of promise, the promised land. These are people who are living in transition. They are living as nomads. They're living as wanderers, as strangers in a foreign land, in a place that is not theirs, surrounded by people who hate them and are opposed to them. As he is dying, Jacob then blesses Joseph in the name of the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. What a wonderful title for the God of a shepherding people. They're nomadic. They don't plant crops. They don't, they don't build businesses. They don't make mines or, or you know, uh, initiatives of trade. They raise livestock. They're shepherds. In fact, we see this when they go down to Joseph. Joseph tells them, tell Pharaoh you're a shepherding people. For the Egyptians don't like shepherds, so they'll put you in Goshen and you won't have to live here in the center of Egypt. And this is the identity of God's people. They are a shepherding people 
And yet their patriarch says, God is the one who's been shepherding me. This is a grand theme in scripture. We see this over and over again. You might remember Psalm 23 when David picks up this same theology, this same faith. The Lord is my shepherd. I will have no needs. No needs that ultimately matter. Jacob also says uh, the, the phrase, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. That's going to show up again later in this psalm. This is the, the name of the God who he serves. And he asks that the same God who was Abraham's God and Isaac's God would now be the God of his son and his son's brothers, the tribes of the people. In the Exodus, about 400 years after they go down into Egypt, God tells Moses that he's going to bring them out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. That's the promised land that God gave them. And he calls it a land flowing with milk and honey. But we know what happens in the Exodus, don't we? After a series of spiritual battles in which Moses and Aaron go in and do signs and wonders before Pharaoh and his magicians seek to imitate some of them, some of them they can, some of them they can't. Just as a sidebar, it's a very interesting thing next time you're reading the Exodus. When, when Moses and Aaron turn water into blood, the magicians do the same thing. But that's beside the point because you can't drink blood water. They should have undone the, the curses. Just think about that for a little bit. The enemy can't create. He can only destroy. Um, so this is what's going on in the, in the time of the Exodus. God is doing a battle. He's demonstrating the folly of the gods of the Egyptians. He's saying, I am God alone. And even Pharaoh, who had set himself up to be God, is destroyed in the midst of God's deliverance. Isn't that right, what, what Jacob had just promised? The angel who has redeemed me from all evil? That's exactly what God is doing for his people again. As God's people journey through the wilderness, however, they experience his presence, they follow his presence on a traveling journey, looking at it as a cloud by day and a fire by night. Once we get to this psalm, some of these things are going to start to come back to memory, but, but this idea is that this is the God who watches over his people day and night, over cloud and fire. There's a, a wonderful word, which you don't have to know, but it's, I love, I love knowledge, so it's a good thing to see. It's a good term to have. It's the word merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. Merisms in scripture are when the writer or the, the story writer, God, does something in two opposites to include the whole. So when God is leading them by a cloud by day and a fire by night, he's contrasting day and night in order to explain to his people, I'm always leading you. I'm always guiding you, whether it be in the daytime or in the nighttime, whether it be through a cloud or through fire, I am directing them through the wilderness. Interestingly enough, because of the people's sins, they don't make it into the land. They refuse to go into the land and they wander in the wilderness. Nevertheless, God does bring them into the land. And once they do that, God tells Israel to remember his covenant faithfulness in the Exodus through the signs and wonders and great deliverance which he has performed. He commands Israel to remember these things 
through special festivals and seasons of celebration, which they were to do in the city of Jerusalem. In the pilgrimage, God said that they had to travel to the place that the Lord will choose. Now, as they're entering the land, they don't know which city, and so God uses this phrase. But isn't it interesting how God does this? Remember back to Abraham? He told Abraham to go to a city or go to a land that I'll show you. He does the same thing for his people. He doesn't say go to Jerusalem. He says, go to the city that I'm going to choose. I'll fill in the details later. I think this is on purpose. God is doing this over and over again in the life of Israel so that as we read, we would be able to hear what he's saying in and through and above the stories, the narratives, the historical accounts faithfully recorded for us. Paul says to the Corinthians, these things were written for us. First, first Peter, maybe it's Second Peter 1, um, one of the epistles of Peter, the prophets who prophesied beforehand, they were not serving themselves. I think it's First Peter 1. They were not serving themselves. It was revealed to them, they were serving you. These are things for us to understand. They're, they're for us to, to receive and to meditate upon and to, to suck out the honey and the marrow from these passages and portions. And so God is writing through covenant history a grand story as my people travel. My people have no land of their own. And if they make it to that land, it's because I'm going to bring them to that land, not because they can enter on their own accord. They can't inherit the land because the Canaanites are too many. They can't come into the land because they don't have a heart to obey. And yet God is saying, I will give you the promises that I gave to Abraham. I will fulfill them. So God gives their peop his people a command and a charge to remember these things in their corporate history. This is an interesting idea, but he commands each of the individual Israelites to go on a journey. And so what I take from this is that he's encoding, he's installing, he's building into the life of each individual Israelite a personal experience which remembers their corporate identity. Now that's a big idea, but simply I want to show that God is giving to the Israelites individual commands. You have to go to Jerusalem. You have to go and relive this journey. It's not enough that you know that Abraham went on a journey. You're going on a journey. And so he gave them a charge three times. All the men should appear before the Lord in Israel. This idea, this, this grand narrative of journey and, and sojourning and being strangers and aliens and going to a place that you don't know, this is so central to the life of God's people and connected with the temple that when David is about to ordain his son or to, to pass the baton, if you will, to Solomon to build the temple, he actually brings this in prayer as a thanksgiving to God. He says, who are you that you've let us do this? He then describes the people this way. We are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Now think about that. David is getting ready to build a physical temple in the city of Jerusalem. He's not going to be able to build it because of his sin. Kind of similar to the, the fact that the people wouldn't be able to enter the land because of their unbelief. He's going to give the next generation the tools 
and the materials to build the temple, which is made of stone. And he's saying, we're wandering. When we build this temple, we're remembering, we're wandering. We're making altars in different places as as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. We're moving through the land. We're moving through enemy territory. We still, though we're in the land, though we've defeated many of the enemies in the land, though the tribes have been given their portions, we're wandering. That's a very interesting idea. And so seeing that this is part of Israel's history, seeing that this is one of the central identities of of an Israelite, I read this psalm, which is a song of ascents. It's a song about going up to the temple and and returning. I read this psalm as a story or a telling of an experience of an Israelite as he has gone to Jerusalem, faithfully obeying God's promises, and now is faced with a return journey. He's gone up and worshiped the Lord. He's completed the festival. And now he turns and he looks at the journey ahead. And he sees things on the horizon, and he's deeply troubled. You see, at this time in the life of Israel, in this culture and at this day, travel was extremely perilous. It was so perilous that when Jesus used, uh, when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he says that there was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, two of the capital cities in Israel, two of the most populous places. And he says that as soon as he got out of the city, he fell into the hands of robbers. That there were people lying in wait, knowing that Jerusalem was a very popular city to travel to and from. These are people who are hiding out near the roads in the wilderness, waiting for blood, waiting for theft to be able to to occur. And so this idea of travel, it's so foreign to us because we get into our cars and we, we can go 80 miles an hour and we can be in another major city in an hour and it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that we've been given, but we have to understand this in the personal context of God's people. This psalm was written to embolden, to, to give sustenance to God's people and as such, we have to hear it in that way. So, so understanding the great dangers that face someone returning from or going to, but I think this is a return from Jerusalem, we hear this psalm as a reminder of the promises of God for those who are on journey. As the pilgrim sets out on the journey, he is startled by the difficulty and the danger which surrounds him. In verse 1, it says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Some translations, it says mountains. Have you, ever, have you ever done this when you've been on a journey? You're, you're knowing where you're going. Maybe you're going on a hike or maybe you're going on a long distance and you look up towards the horizon and you can kind of see where you're going. But you don't exactly know. I see the mountain. I see that I have to get beyond there, but I can't see the places that I have to go to in the valleys. That's the nature of valleys. You can't see where you're going to go through. I was reminded last night as I was just getting prepared of, of the great story that captured so many of our imaginations, especially you young people who were living through the, the early 2000s. Do you remember Lord of the Rings? There's this season in the first, or the, this moment in the first movie, there's this scene in the first movie where Sam comes to a cornfield and Frodo's already ahead of him and Frodo's just going forward. And, and Sam stops and he says, this is it. 
If I take one more step, it'll be the furthest I've ever been from home. And he pauses because he's terrified. He's this little tiny hobbit, a very short person, with hobbits are not known for fighting, who's going to this place that is a mountain of fire, and he's going to throw an evil ring in a volcano. And Frodo just returns, and he, he turns back and he says, come on, Sam, let's go. And then he, he says, remember what Bilbo used to say, it's a dangerous thing putting your feet out the door. You never know where the road's going to take you. What's so interesting is like we insert ourselves into these stories, we're going to be Frodo. We're Sam. <laughs> we can't keep going. This is the danger that, that, that surrounds journey. There's something deep in this experience of the life of the Israelite that, that God is using, and he's saying, no, you don't need to pause. You need to remember the promises that I've, that I've given you. And that's exactly what this Israelite does. Beyond the robbers, hills, and wild animals are the simple dangers of heat, exhaustion, starvation, thirst. All of these things God addresses in this psalm. Though the hills may intimidate, the pilgrim nevertheless responds in trust. If you remember what we were talking about earlier, this is like a self-catechizing, isn't it? He says, where's my help going to come from? And then he immediately responds, my help comes from the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he does this calling to mind the creator's identity. And he, he basically is saying this, that if, if the Lord made the, the heavens and the earth, this, this, again, this merism, this identity of heaven and earth, these two opposites to include the whole, if the Lord made heaven and earth, then surely he made some hills and some mountains and he can get me through those things. He essentially is saying to himself, hills may terrify, but I am sustained by the one who made them. He, he sees danger ahead, and he lifts his eyes, not physically, but spiritually. He's looking, and he says, I see this danger in front of me, these hills that I have to travel through to get home, and what do, where's my help? What, how am I going to be sustained as I'm going through these hills? And then he turns the eyes of his heart to his maker. He says, I'm going to look beyond what I see to who sees me. That's what he's doing in this passage. And so at this point, the psalm then takes a dramatic change in voice. These first two verses are the pilgrim's voice. But then immediately the psalm changes to be what I believe is the, the voice of the priest who is blessing him as he's leaving Jerusalem. After the pilgrim's anxious question, the priest then proclaims a blessing. Look at verse 2, my help comes. And then verse 3, he then, he then says, he will not let your foot be moved. There's a change in voice. It's important to recognize that change in voice because what I believe the rest of this psalm is doing, verses 3 through 8, it's an extended blessing in which this priest, uh, at least in the role of this psalm, is proclaiming the blessing of the God who keeps his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. So I, I believe this is, this is God's promise to this pilgrim as he's setting out. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
As the pilgrim returns in trust, that is, he returns home on his journey, the Lord is going to guard his steps. Baal is a false god of the, of the people of the Canaanites. And one of the things that's interesting about this idea of God not sleeping or slumbering is that Baal, one of the false gods of the peoples, was considered to sleep in a time. And during the summer months, they considered, it was supposed, that Baal would be asleep. In fact, in the great controversy between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he ridicules them saying, is Baal sleeping? And, and he's, he's playing into this idea of, you've got a God who needs to take a nap. That's not a God. It's a false God. It's, it's no God at all. If anything, it is a demon which is trying to delude men to believe it's a God. Uh, Baal is the one who goes on journey. He's not a God who is in the heavens. Baal was considered to be a God who had to complete a circuit. This is, if you learn about mythology, many of the Greek and Roman gods also completed a circuit through the seasons. And so this Baal God is the one who's journeying and the one who needs to sleep. And the psalmist says, your God never sleeps. He never needs to rest. And we see from this a promise that God is always watching. And he's always watching in the eyes of an attentive father, in a father who is trying to see the danger that comes in front of them and rescues them in the moment. This is one of my chief anxieties as a new young father is I'm constantly watching Susan as she toddles around our house and I'm thinking to myself, okay, that's glass, that's metal, that's wood, wood's fine, uh, that's <laughs> carpet, and and. I've kind of noticed myself, unless, I, unless I'm operating in God's grace, I'm tempted to, uh, I, want, I need to, and I, I have to restrain myself. But see, our father isn't like that. He never misses a moment. He always sees. He never sleeps. Even while we're sleeping, he is attentive. This is, in fact, the great thing that enables us to sleep is because there's a God in the heavens who's always watching us. So the, the point that I, I take from this is that God is giving a promise to Israel and he's bringing it to bear on the life of the individual. Looking closely at verse three again and verse four, he who keeps Israel, then look back at verse three, he who keeps you. Do you see this corporate and personal identity? Our God is like an alert shepherd who throughout all the night seasons, throughout all the night watches, every moment, every hour, is watching his people. The priest then declares that God is not only the creator of heaven and earth, he's not only the keeper of Israel, but he is your keeper. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. In the breakdown of the words of this psalm, this is the center point. All of, if you split the psalm in half, this phrase, the Lord is your keeper, is the very middle of this psalm. And it's done so intentionally that the psalmist is saying, this is the central point. It's not that you need to be faithful in a journey. It's even in the moments of weakness where you can't muster up a response to God's promise, the Lord is keeping you. That's, that's what happens. When, when we sleep, when we give ourselves in trust to God, we aren't constantly just bringing his promises to mind. 
there are times at which we have to resign ourselves to his grace and to his protection. And that is what is being put forth in this psalm, is the Lord is your keeper. You're not your own keeper. Isn't that such a wonderful thing as an American Christian? What is the chief temptation of American Christianity? It is be the master of your own destiny. That is the chief temptation. Many of us think it's pornography or career goals or, or you know, lying, cheating, stealing, wanting power, whatever. The chief problem in the Christian church, if you had to boil it down to one thing, is self-directed living. It's not submitting ourselves in yielded trust to the Lordship of Christ. It's being our own caretakers, our own gods. That might not be the chief, but it's certainly one of the top maybe five or so. And so this psalm is combating that idea. You cannot protect yourself. The Lord is your protector. This idea is not just the center of the psalm in word order. It's also the main theme. The psalmist uses it six times. And for you wonderful Bible scholars, you may know that seven is the number of perfection. Why does the psalmist not use it seven times? The reason is because the number six It often gets a bad rap through the mark of the beast or the number 666. We don't have time to go into that. That's not a stamp. It's not a barcode. It's not a chip. (laughs) The number six is the number of man. Man was given six days to labor. And so that idea, just so you're aware, is it's a a very man kingdom. That 666 shows up in in the kingdom of Solomon. You can figure that out on your own or ask me later. But the point is... What, he, what the psalmist is doing is the Lord is keeping this man. That's what he's doing. The number of man being six and the Lord reiterating his keeping of that man six times. He's, he's saying, I'm always watching you. Whenever you're working, whenever you're traveling, on this journey, every day you're living these six days and resting on the seventh, I'm always keeping you. I'm always watching you. From the scriptures, an Israelite has many testimonies of God's provision for Israel. This is going back again to verse 4, but also applies in verse 5. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And the temptation as the Israelite is to draw upon these testimonies, but then say, well, God rescued Abraham. I'm not Abraham. God rescued Isaac. He preserved Jacob. He made a way for Joseph in prison. I'm not Joseph. This is the temptation, isn't it? That we we well up within ourselves knowledge of what God has done in the past and say, well, those are how he treated his people then. And is it possible that he's going to do that again? I don't know. I'm not them. I don't have the faith of Abraham. I don't have the faith of Moses. I don't have the faith of Elijah. What does James say? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. This, I believe, is what this psalmist is getting at. He's saying, the one who keeps Israel is your personal keeper, you little Israelite, you lowly Israelite, you you solitary Israelite. I keep the nation. Yes, indeed, I've kept the people. Yes, I'm the creator of heaven and earth, but I'm your keeper. I'm your Lord. I'm your God. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He's, he's telling this promise to the pilgrim, but then they write it into the book of the Psalms for God's people to use. It's important that whenever we look at the context of the history, we also have to remember the context of the text. 
It was given as a song for the people of God that they would hear. The temptation is to think that these are individual actions of God when really they were done that God would reveal his nature toward his people. This is how God deals with his people. The manner, the ways of God, not just the acts of God, not just the individual salvation from God. This phrase that he uses, on your right hand, is a very military phrase describing a vulnerability. If you've ever seen a military movie uh, with some of the Romans or the Greeks, you might, you might remember in your mind, a shield is held on the left side and a sword is held on the right side. And so the vulnerable position of the soldier is the whole right side because the shield is primarily guarding the left side and the center. And it creates a very strong difficulty to be able to move the shield over to the right side and still attack. It's very difficult to do that. And so as they established their battle lines, people stood next to each other. And this idea of the one who's at your right side it has to be an extremely trustworthy person. Why? Because if they drop their shield, you're exposed. And so the Lord declares to this pilgrim, I'm going to be your shade or your shield, your covering on your right side. The psalmist is, here, the psalmist is telling this pilgrim, he is the one who protects you in the place that you're the most vulnerable. God is shielding the pilgrim from that which he cannot shield himself. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Do you see this opposite thing again? It's so beautiful once you get to see these patterns. They just inspire such confidence of the voice of the Holy Spirit as he is beautifully bringing to mind, the Lord is watching you day and night. You cannot be touched by the sun or the moon. And interestingly, you might say, well, what about the stars? That's included. That's what the psalmist does when he uses these opposites to speak about the whole. God is always watching the, the Israelite. For the journey back, the sun was a very lethal danger. If you've ever taken some time to journey, uh, maybe you've gone on a hike that's lasted the whole day. Even today, being able to carry water or have water near us, the sun is a very real threat. Sunburn is a very real thing. Heat stroke, heat death is a very real thing. In fact, there's actually one example of this in the scriptures. When this boy is going out to his father, you might remember it's that very weird place where he says, my head, my head. And then he lies on his mother's lap till noon and dies. Why? Because noon is the hottest point of the day. And so this is a very real danger. The sun, is a vulner the sun exposes vulnerabilities of travelers. As you're going through places of valleys, mountains, hills, yes, there is some shade, but there is not total shade. Likewise, the, at this time, it was considered that the moon, you, you shall not be struck by the moon by night, it was considered that the moon was a dangerous thing as well because in their day, they considered being moonstruck as a potential for mental illness or, or lunacy. In fact, that's where that word comes from, lunatic. Luna is the word for moon. That's where that history comes from, this belief that, that the moon caused a, a, an illness of the mind. And in fact, we see this in the King James translation of the New Testament two times when the, the, the one who now it's translated epilepsy, in the Greek, it is caught by the moon or struck by the moon. 
This is a very interesting idea. Nevertheless, God says, even over your physical body, over your mind, I am protecting you. God's protection of his people is therefore seen in these verses as total. The one who made the sun and the moon surely can guard you from the sun and the moon. The priest then alludes to Jacob's description of God's salvation. Do you remember back when we heard Jacob say, the God who has been my shepherd all my life. And then he said, the angel who has guarded me from every evil. He then, the psalmist then is alluding to that in this next verse. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Do you see those opposites again? You're going out, you're coming in. From this time forth, now and forevermore. What a wonderful promise. These final promises of God's protection move way beyond the physical creation to begin to encompass all of the life of the soul, that word life is soul, and all of time, both now and eternity. God's protection is not just while going out and while coming in, but encompasses life and even death. As glorious as these promises are, And as glorious as we hear them to be, I want to ask the question, what are these promises in essence? Now just think with me for a moment. Does this promise tell every Israelite that as they're journeying, they will never have to deal with the sun? Think about it for a second. Did God cause a small cloud to personally follow each Israelite for the entire history? Do you see how absurd that idea is? pretty silly. And the reason why is we intuitively know God is not just concerned with sunburn. He's he's not just concerned with circumstantial protection. He's not just concerned with individual momentary circumstances. He's saying something much deeper than that. And in fact, to truncate it as God's just going to protect me on my journeys, but not look through this promise and and getting to the marrow and the meat of what it is, I think we are short-sighted. And I think the psalmist would say, you you missed my point. What What do I mean by that? Am I trying to demean or belittle or attack the point of the word of God? Not at all. What I'm trying to do is say that this promise, as the New Testament tells us, these old covenant promises were shadows. And there's a substance in Christ. So what do you do as a Christian when you go out on a journey and get sunburned? Do you say the word of God has failed? No. Rather, you rehear, you retune your heart to what the psalmist is saying in the psalm. In the New Testament, we see quite clearly, more clearly, God's promises to the people in Jesus' teaching that he will guard them forevermore. And this is what I want to focus on in closing. As Jesus taught the people, he did not give superficial and earthly promises. Remember what happened in my, in my own life? I just want to bring this illustration back up. I went to bed thinking, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, as I was falling asleep, I all the more gladly boasted about my weaknesses. I'm sick. I can't talk. I did not expect in that moment that the Lord would instantaneously heal me from that cold. Although he can, and I wanted it. But 
what I am trying to do through looking at these next two passages is help your hearts not be troubled when you think the promises of God failed, but you were hearing the wrong thing the whole time. Because I don't want you to be shaken. I don't want your faith to be disturbed. I want your faith to be in the sure mercies of David, not the circumstantial hopes of an easy life or easy believism or name it, claim it. By his stripes, I'm healed. So I'm going to be able to preach tomorrow. That's not how the promises of God work. There are times when the Lord will circumstantially bless his people and he does that all the time. But more often than not, we live in a world where sin attacks us, illness attacks us, circumstances attack us, something comes out of left field and we're left wondering, God, are you sleeping? This psalm says you're not, you never sleep, but it sure seems like you're asleep right now. How do I, as a believer, move my heart out of fear in the circumstance to faith in the sure, steadfast, never-changing promises of God, which will be completed completely. Jesus, Paul said that every promise in Christ is yes and amen. So how can it be when I have this terrible thing happen around me? The reason why I want to show this is because I think Jesus has something much deeper and sweeter for us. Teaching us not to fear, Jesus does not promise safety from troubling things, but rather that we will not ultimately and finally be troubled. Consider Jesus' teaching of God's special knowledge of our lives. We often bring to mind the Sermon on the Mount, and those are wonderful promises. Don't be anxious for anything. The Lord knows that you need food and clothing. That's true, but then Jesus reiterates that later in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here's that bird thing again, right? The sparrows. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Isn't that wonderful that the hairs, he knows specifically each individual hair. Does God's special knowledge of your hairs mean that you will never face troubling things? In the moment, if you take this promise and say, the Lord knows the number of hairs on my head, he'll get me through this, I won't have to face, dot, 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 then you've completely missed the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus here distinguishes between dying in body and dying in soul. So there's a difference. He says, do not fear the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell, in perishing. Similar, similarly, in fact, quoting or reiterating verse 30, uh, Jesus says in Luke 21, 16 through 18, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a head of your hair shall perish. What is he saying? This sounds crazy. This sounds like it doesn't make any sense. How can Jesus say, some of you they will put to death, and probably without taking another breath, he's able to say, but not a head of your hair will perish. 
It's because what he's doing is he's moving beyond the, the earthly, physical concerns of his disciples for bodily security. He's moving beyond that to expose the deep need that they have to trust in God's promises while being put to death. That as they are being hanged or killed, they are not perishing. Even while they perish, they're not perishing. How can Jesus do this? It is because perishing in the whole of Scripture ultimately does not mean just dying physically, but rather dying forever. Therefore, to redeem his people, God sent his son. In fact, this is the most quoted verse from the New Testament, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that I translate it as all the believing, would not perish. Are you going to die? Yes, you're going to die. But you won't perish if you trust in Christ. That is what I believe Jesus did when he was sent to this earth. As God is the good shepherd of Israel, as God is the one who is fulfilling the promises in this psalm, so also Jesus says to his people, I'm the good shepherd. How do the promises of God in this psalm come about? It's because Jesus Christ purchased them with his death. Seeing the wolf coming, the good shepherd lays down his life from, for the sheep. So what's the wolf in that scenario? Is it an actual wolf? No. What's the wolf? It is eternal death because of enmity with God. That is what Jesus lays his life down for. Jesus interposes himself between the eternal death that is coming toward his people and he takes the hit upon himself. Now, what good is a dead shepherd? It's not much good. Therefore, Jesus then says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Jesus takes the hit. He interposes. He lets the wolf attack him so that his people would be spared. And defeating the wolf, he comes back to life and is raised. The death which Christ defeated, therefore, is not the death of the body, but the eternal death which comes upon every soul which hates God and does not believe in Christ. Many people quote John 3.16, a very important verse is John 3.36, that whoever does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains upon him. You see, it doesn't come upon him because he doesn't believe. The wrath of God is already on each person who is at enmity with him in sin. And only in coming to Christ can that be removed. Just as the priest's announcement of the promise to this pilgrim gives him protection and, and provides for the journey home, so also Christ gives these promises to his people. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he, he reminds these people of the promises that they should set their heart upon the precious promises that they've been given in the word so that they would have the ability to journey home. In defeating death, Christ rose and gave his disciples precious promises to help them persevere in the midst of deep trials and suffering. All those who live a God, wish to live a godly life will suffer. You can count on it. So how do you prepare your heart in the midst? Is you, you train yourself to, just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like Jacob, hear the promises of God and respond in faith. But be very careful that you do not twist the promises of God into something that he's not saying. 
God will not deliver you from every trial. He will deliver you in every trial. That is what I believe Jesus is telling his disciples. Just as the Lord keeps his people forevermore, Jesus promised them, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that a wonderful promise? In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of of loss, in the midst of, of a trying circumstance, in the midst of cancer, you can say to yourself, he's with me always. He's with me right now. That is what provides our hearts with the the fuel and the fire to obey and to trust. Let's close. Father, we thank you so much for this word. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from trusting in ourselves, from from taking your word and twisting it to say something that it's not saying. Lord, we we ask you that you would allow our hearts to cling to the sure mercies in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from, uh, from accusations against you in the midst of trial and in the midst of suffering. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to learn the secret of taking your promises, internalizing them and obeying and believing them and using them for, your, for, for spiritual energy that by using your word and and participating with your spirit, you would get the glory in our obedience, that you would be honored in every way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.